Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground with me, Saul David and Patrick Bishop. As the war in Ukraine approaches its second anniversary, we're going to step back a little this week and have a look at where we are in the conflict. This was a war that many expected to last only two weeks. Now it's lasted two years and there is absolutely no sign that it's nearing its end. With the general acceptance that there is little possibility of either side delivering a knockout blow, the struggle has settled down into a battle of resources and a battle of resolve. We'll be looking at how that could develop in the months ahead. And that will depend to a large extent on political developments in the West and in Russia. We'll be previewing the Russian presidential elections now only a month away and trying to gauge how Western support for Ukraine will hold up during the crucial period ahead. Now more than ever, the war is being seen as a hinge moment in our history, pitting democracy against totalitarianism. By the end of the year, we're likely to find out who has cracked first. The stakes are very, very high here, aren't they, Saul? A realisation, I think, that the anniversary is bringing home to everyone. Yes, that's right. I think this year is going to be decisive in many respects. On the Ukrainian side, the outcome depends on several crucial factors. The first is the extent to which political and material support for Kyiv holds up in America and Europe. Can the West give Zelensky and his generals the wherewithal to hold out against Russia as it retools and rearms, fed by a glut of money pouring into their defence industrial base, now working night and day to replenish battlefield losses? The second is how Ukrainian political and social cohesion, morale basically, will weather the very tough times ahead with no progress at the front, energy levels flagging and spirits dipping, and no rosy light of a new dawn on the horizon. And on the Russian side, there are also crucial known unknowns, let us not forget. For all the triumphalist talk, the fact remains that the war for Russia has been a huge setback. So far, the population and Putin's court of securocrats seem to still be going along with it. But how long can that last if there's nothing to show for the huge losses and international isolation and economic difficulties begin to bite? But let's start off by looking at the question of resources, Saul. How do you see things going for Ukraine? Well, as we speak, the will-they-won't-they saga that has been playing out in Washington over the question of the $61 billion arms package for Ukraine is still unresolved in the face of dogged opposition from Republicans who initially wanted it tied to action on increased security on America's southern border. But there has, I should say, been an important development today with news that the Ukraine aid package, bundled with aid for Israel and Taiwan, has just passed through the Senate. That, of course, still leaves the House of Representatives, which could be tricky, but it's good news nonetheless. And at the same time, there's been a lot of vigorous action visible in Europe, and in particular in Germany, where Chancellor Schultz has just said defence companies could count on his government ramping up military spending and that it would meet its commitment to spend 2% of GDP on NATO defence. Schultz said Germany and Europe's defence industry must switch towards mass production of arms as the war in Ukraine had exposed European manufacturers deficiencies in meeting demand for ammunition. This was said on a visit to the site of a new Rhein-Metall ammunition factory being built in central Germany and due to open in 2025 with an initial production run of 50,000 shells a year. This is urgently necessary because the painful reality is that we do not live in times of peace, said Schultz. We must move from manufacturing to mass production of armaments. 
he said, arguing that those who want peace must be able to successfully deter aggressors. So all in all, a massive turnaround from the beginning of the war when Germany's first offer to Ukraine was, if you remember, Patrick, 5,000 helmets. And all of this must be music to Donald Trump's ears, I imagine. Absolutely. Well, um, the latest contribution from the Donald on the NATO question was pretty outrageous, even by his standards. So this was when he appeared to say that he might actually encourage Vladimir Putin to invade NATO member states who failed to meet the organization's requirement uh, that they spend at least 2% of GDP on defense. But um, I've got to say that you know, crude though these shock tactics are, there is some evidence they actually work. I mean, America's been saying forever that uh, Europe has to do more to shoulder the financial burden for its own defense. Now, President Obama, as was his way, uh, said it politely. Trump keeps saying it very rudely. And guess which method works? Uh, I mean, Europe took no notice of Obama. But when Trump uh, laid into NATO members back in 2018 and their summit at uh, Brussels, it had a, a measurable effect. Um, at the time, there were only four countries who were actually meeting that target, uh, the U.S., Greece, the UK, and Estonia. Well, since 2018, uh, six more countries have hit the mark. The rule seems to be the closer you are to Moscow, the more likely you are to put your hand in your pocket. So you look at Estonia, 2.73%, Lithuania, 2.54%, Finland, 2.45%, etc. And Poland, of course, being the alliance's biggest spender, as a share of GDP, they contribute 3.9%, which is even more than the US, which is on three, roughly 3.5%. Three but then when you move right over geographically to the other side of the continent, the far west, Portugal spends only 1.48% and Spain a measly 1.26%. Well, I think this trend of rising um, numbers is, is going to continue. Um, I mean, virtually everyone except for the UK and the US, is now spending more in percentage terms on defence today than they were back in 2014. And I think this is born out of the growing realisation, which is very much stoked by Trump, that the volatility of American politics and the consequences of that volatility mean that it's no longer guaranteed that, uh, that America is going to pay the lion's share of Europe's own defence. But all this is, is still in the pipeline, isn't it? It's, all, it's not going to help Ukraine in the immediate future. What it needs is as much kit as it can get right now. And I think it's long ago understood that it can only, in the end, rely on itself. Yeah, that's right. And it seems to be pouring as much as it can into the production of drones. This is an obvious move, really, flagged up by the outgoing commander-in-chief, Valerie Zeluzhny, some months back when... In his famous Economist interview, he emphasised the necessity for some game-changing technological advance if there was to be a breakthrough. Before leaving, he outlined a plan to massively scale up the use of unmanned systems to overcome Russia's advantages in manpower and material and break the deadlock in this war. Of course, the effectiveness of such systems was proved again last week, as we mentioned, when they sank a Russian missile corvette, set an oil refinery on fire, and had other successes. Unmanned systems are almost the only tool for withdrawing from military operations of a positional form, wrote Zeluzhny, adding that traditional heavy armour and manpower are increasingly a dream for Ukraine's armed forces. 
And he called them for a completely new state of technological rearmament that could take up to five months. Well, this has actually been underway for some time now. The government pledged late last year to build 1 million first-person viewer drones and 11,000 medium and long-range drones this year. Ukraine is already apparently producing 90% of the drones it uses. On top of that, last month, Ukraine's Prime Minister, Denis Shmil, said the country plans to increase its domestic weapons production sixfold this year, and it's already produced three times more equipment and weapons than in the first year of the war. That included armoured vehicles and anti-tank missile systems. Now, all of this will be going to service under new management, as we explained last time. With Zeluzhny's departure, there's been a whole raft of new appointments, starting, of course, with his replacement, Oleksandr Sersky, the former ground forces commander. And the point of all this emphasis on technology is, of course, to save lives. Ukraine has suffered hugely in this war. There are no official figures on casualties, but estimates of 70,000 dead are considered to be not unlikely. And the whole question of manpower is a thorny one in Ukrainian domestic politics. Sersky, though, does look like a bit of an odd appointment in that respect, doesn't he, Patrick? That's right, yeah. As you mentioned last week, Saul, he's got a reputation as being a bit of a Soviet-style hard charger who doesn't mind heavy losses in the pursuit of objectives, and that was amply demonstrated in the dogged uh, nine-month defence of Bakhmut, which, of course, was then eventually abandoned. And certainly there have been, since uh, his appointment, reports of uh, disquiet and even dismay in the ranks. There was one story of someone on a, on hearing uh, the news that he was going to be, be taking over as, as commander-in-chief. A soldier tweeted a message in a group chat of veterans who'd been in Bakhmut, and uh, his message was, we're all screwed. Well, actually, he put it a bit more forcefully than that. <laughs> and another officer posted on X that uh, Sierski's leadership is, quote, bankrupt, his presence or orders coming from his name are demoralizing, and he undermines trust in the command in general. His relentless pursuit of tactical gains constantly depletes our valuable human resources, resulting in tactical advances such as capturing tree lines or small villages with no operational goals in mind. So uh, not going down terribly well in the ranks, it would seem. Well, in his place, Zelensky's appointed uh, Lieutenant General Alexander Pavlyuk. Uh, he's now the Ukrainian Ground Forces Commander. Uh, there are a whole load of other new faces uh, to replace outgoing commanders. The Joint Forces Commander is gone. The Air Assault Forces Commander is gone. I mean, they haven't all been sacked. Some of them have been actually moved up a level. Well, before Pavlyuk was um, first Deputy Defense Minister, I don't know, uh, and I haven't read much about you know, his character, his style, but he apparently has Sierski's backing. Uh, what do you think is going on here, Saul? Well, it's a pretty straightforward clearing of the decks and the creation of a new team, but a new team, Patrick, who are on board with Zelensky's new strategy, which is not uh, particularly military-based, but more political, as you can imagine. And that's to convince the Ukrainian public that the war can still be won. I think the biggest charge made against Zeluzhny is that he wasn't entirely convinced, certainly not with the tools he had in his hands, that that might be the, the situation. And, and this can have a very big effect on uh, the morale of the public and the morale also of the army. And the whole question of morale is crucial. There are manpower shortages uh, for sure, and the military authorities are finding it ever harder 
to fill the ranks. There have been media reports of increasing numbers shirking their military duties. I suppose, in essence, what you've now got is a relatively small number of people actually doing the fighting, even though there are about a million Ukrainians under arms at the moment. A relatively small fraction are at the front. And one of the things that Sersky's been saying, apparently, is that there's going to be more of a rotation so that the behind the lines characters, who are never popular in armies as we know, Patrick, are actually going to do a bit of service at the front. Just how effective they're going to be there without the requisite training and experience is another matter. But I suppose it'll be relatively popular if people who have been serving in the front line get to be rotated out more frequently. Um, we're going to have a report from the ground in Ukraine next week on that question and many others to coincide with the anniversary of the war. But we should never lose sight, of course, of the fact that the Russians have their own problems too, should we? That's right, Saul. It's easy sometimes to be slightly kind of um, dismayed by the kind of um, propaganda coming out of Moscow. One, one tends to sometimes uh, to take it at face value. Like when we were last week, we were talking about you know the amazing kind of energy that's going in, into their war economy and the huge amounts of money that's being spent on it. But actually, if you dig a bit deeper, it's not nearly as rosy as it looks. A lot of these tanks that they're claiming they're pumping out are actually old refurbished ones. It takes time to, even though there's a lot, of, a lot of effort going into it, it takes time for all this investment in effort and, and money to actually produce results. Uh, so I don't think we should get too carried away by, that, by this. And you also got to really just stand back and look at it. It's very hard to see how Putin can sustain public enthusiasm, if, it in, if indeed it exists at all, for a war that, objectively speaking, is going nowhere, is it? I mean... How do you present this struggle and the sacrifices in terms uh, that are easily understandable to the population? The aims, Russia's war aims, as stated, are pretty much entirely nebulous, really, aren't they? I mean, it's making Russia great again, if you like. Uh, so there's no measurable metric of success. And all they can really see is endless losses and virtually no territorial gains. And in a month's time, we might just get a glimpse behind the thick wall of Kremlin propaganda to see just how much support there really is. So between 15th and 17th of March, Russia is going to the polls to elect a new president. Well, the result is not in doubt, is it? The winner is going to be Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. The only person who really might have counted as an anti-war cap candidate was um, Boris Nadezhdin, who we were talking about last week. Well, a couple of days ago, he was barred from running uh, against Putin in the election when the um, the Electoral Commission decided uh, that there were alleged irregularities in the signatures of voters, uh, that you have to have a, a certain number of people supporting your candidacy. So he's out. There'll be a couple of other names on the ballot sheet. There's uh, Leonid Slutsky, uh, leader of an ultra- nationalist pro-war party, Nikolai Karitonov, uh, who's a communist, and someone called Vladislav Devankov. Now, Devankov is a bit more interesting than the other two who are basically stooges, as his um, party voted against giving independence to the Lugansk and uh, Donetsk regions of Ukraine. And he himself supported the candidacy of Nadezhdin on the grounds that uh, voters should be given a, a real choice. Now, even though there's no real anti-war candidate uh, in the election, I think it can still be seen as a referendum on the war. People can make their feelings known by not voting at all. And I think even the Kremlin would have a hard job to totally fake the turnout numbers. It's going to be fascinating. 
Okay, well, before we wrap up this half, I was amused to see, I should say, that the Russian Foreign Ministry has announced that sanctions have been imposed on 18 British academics and officials who, they say, are demonising Russia and fanning the war in Ukraine. They don't include me, even with my pseudo-academic uh, hat on, Patrick, but they do include Orlando Figes, the excellent historian of Russia who we had on one of our early podcasts. But also not included are people like Phil O'Brien, an outspoken critic of Moscow and a friend of the podcast who I suspect will be a little bit disappointed to be left off the list, as was I. What about you, Patrick? How would you feel if, if the news came through that all of us had been put on the blacklist? Well, I, sp- I suppose it is. A, it will be regarded as a badge of honour, won't it? But on the other hand, we do we do strive at objectivity, even though I think people are pretty sure where our hearts lie. Well, at least it shows the Kremlin's listening. Someone out there has got their uh, is tuned in to all our utterances uh, and has uh, got the pen poised to uh, to add names to the blacklist. Okay, that's it for part one. Join us in part two when we'll be answering all your questions. Welcome back. Well, the first question this week is from Joe Dernin from New York in the US. I'm pretty amazed, he writes, at the Russian ability to absorb the huge casualties and keep fighting. In contrast, I'm not impressed by the professionalism or the military equipment of the Russians. It's the ability of the Russian army to continue to function and its societal acceptance of these casualties that amazes me. Granted, Russian society is limited in the information it has access to, but this war seems a throwback to World War II. I don't think modern Japanese, Korean or Western countries would accept these losses as they have in the past. So his question is, what makes Russia so different or why haven't they progressed past the 1940s mindset? Patrick, what do you think? Well, I think what we uh, have to remember, Joe, uh, is that Russia has never really, as a society, enjoyed freedom. If you just think about it, uh, history in the last you know, 150 years, they moved from, from the Tsars to a communist dictatorship. And okay, communism fell, and there was a brief uh, period of uh, sort of some form of democracy, but the package did not include prosperity. And under Boris Yeltsin, they got unrestrained, red-blooded capitalism, which enriched a a tiny few beyond the dreams of avarice, but uh, impoverished many, making them worse off than they were under the communists. So this was not a great introduction to the Western way of life and the freedoms that went with it, like a free media and respect for human rights. So, you know, a lot of people preferred stability, even if it came at the price of living under an autocracy. And of course, Putin was all too happy to give it to them. I think that might answer the point about why uh, people are in this 1940s mindset. But I think this uh, willingness to absorb unimaginable suffering and death is still a mystery to me that, you know, the Russians have demonstrated down the centuries. I mean, in the Second World War, the Germans were amazed at the way the Soviet commanders were apparently indifferent to the lives of their men. And we've seen that over again in, in Bakhmut last year, haven't we? You know, There's even a, a tendency to celebrate this sort of apparent indifference to death. We Russians know how to die. This is how various pro-Putin commentators have put it, as if it's something that demonstrated their superiority over their enemies. Okay, so Ian says he has a quick question for us. 
He wants to know, how is it in the interest of the West and in the USA in particular for Russia to not suffer a definitive defeat in Ukraine? It seems so self-evident. He says that the wider and longer-term interests of the West are served by Ukrainian victory, that it's difficult to understand the foot-dragging approach. Do you think it reflects a lack of political understanding, an inappropriate focus on local partisan politics, a simple lack of munition reserves and manufacturing capability was something more cynical, e.g. weakening Russia while forcing Europe to spend more on defence and allow the US to disengage with NATO to a degree while weakening Europe as an economic competitor. Sometimes, he finishes, it seems that the West is determined to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory through political fear and indecision. Over to you, Saul. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything, actually. I mean, we've been saying for so long, Ian, that the West in general, uh, Europe in particular, and I say Europe in particular because it's much easier to persuade a European electorate that it's worth paying for a Ukrainian victory than it is an American electorate, as we can see. But even, even the Americans might be, as I've mentioned earlier, the Senate has just passed a $61 billion dollar aid package to Ukraine, even the Americans might be waking up to all of this. Another conspiracy theory, which you kind of alluded to, is that the West and America in particular want to keep Russia weak. And therefore, the longer this war goes on, the better. I, I'm not buying into that in the slightest. I think we need uh, to send a decisive message to not just Russia, but other bad actors around the world, um, that this sort of behavior can't be acceptable. And it's just possible, given the news that Europe has come together to fund Ukraine for the foreseeable future, that actually we are awakening up to all of this. So the new year started badly, it has to be said, with both these aid packages being held up. But one of them has now been passed. The other one might be. And even if it isn't, as I did say at the turn of the year, as long as Europe is fully supportive, of Ukraine, that might be enough. I mentioned the briefing that I attended, the security briefing about a week ago. And one of the big points they made at that briefing was that Europe's economy combined completely dwarfs Russia. And therefore, if just Europe alone stays solid in its support of Ukraine, it ultimately will win the economic arm wrestle. So let's hope that at least that's the case. But ideally, we'd have uh, America in with us too. Yeah, I'd also say uh, that the basic problem, Ian, is is that this is a contest between democracies and an autocracy backed by other autocracies, i.e. Uh, Russia in conjunction with uh, with China, etc. I don't think it's that the West doesn't see the threat, but it's organized to react to it collectively through the UN, NATO, and so forth. And that means that decision-making takes an inordinate amount of time as everyone calculates a threat from their own particular position uh, before they start considering the group. Now, we saw this in the 1930s when the democracies were facing up to Hitler, and we're seeing exactly the same thing now. And the result is that although they might arrive at the right decision in the end, it always comes later rather than sooner. Of course, the real danger is that when it does come, uh, it might be too late. 
Now, a related question from Chelsea is uh, she listens to the podcast in her studio. So um, is she an artist? Who knows? And something Chelsea can't square is why America and its elite on the right are no longer afraid of Russia. She remembers as a child that they were the bogeyman and we lived in fear of nuclear war. Why is it now completely acceptable for Tucker Carlson to sidle up to a Russian dictator without it raising an eyebrow? When was the sea change? Well, there's a pretty simple answer to that. And that's the end of the Cold War, unfortunately, because because, you know, I think as we've alluded before, I mean, if Tucker Carlson is at the right of American politics, it's his identification with Putin as a populist leader and therefore not as a communist, not to the left of the political spectrum, but for anything to the right that has made the big difference. Now, it shouldn't be about the opposite ends of the political spectrum. It should be about which country poses a genuine security threat to yours or to the West in general. And Russia clearly is that country. But as I say, to answer your question specifically, the end of the Cold War and the and the end of communism as a threat as far as Russia was concerned has made the big difference in terms of how the right in America sees the Russian threat. Now, Chris, in Perth, Australia says, I don't think due attention is being paid to Putin's real reasons for the conflict. I think it can be argued that it is a simple case of follow the money with the resources Eastern Ukraine contains. He references uh, BBC's Ukraine cast, and they apparently um, mentioned this right at the outset, saying that Ukraine has a significant amount of rare earths, which of course are very vital in modern technology, um, plus, of course, the um, old-fashioned coal and uh, agriculture. And he points us in the direction of a Matthew Said column uh, in the Times newspaper, which I think you've had a look at, haven't you, Saul? I have. And um, by the way, this wasn't the only message this week that relates to uh, renewables and energy and Ukraine, and therefore a possible reason why Russia might have launched the war. And it really hasn't got into the sort of mainstream assessment, certainly hasn't in our assessment, Patrick, as to this being a serious reason for the invasion of Ukraine, and therefore a determination to keep hold of parts of Ukraine. So let's have a little look at the Syed articles. It's absolutely fascinating. And Matthew Syed, by the way, in my view, is, is one of the finest and most thoughtful columnists. He, he ranges very widely. His, his real expertise is in sort of science and under, the understanding of science, but he moves all over the place. And, and what he writes is this. Um, you know, I don't have time to read out the whole article. I'm just going to give you a couple of extracts. Uh, and he writes at one point in the article, it's worth pondering this. Renewable energy may be clean at the point of delivery, but it's also materially intensive in production. An electric car can use six times more minerals than a combustion engine equivalent with up to 250,000 kilograms of raw materials just for the battery. Now widen the lens to consider the staggering requirements to build wind turbines, solar panels, and more at scale. Let's circle back to Ukraine. Did you know, right side, that it has been described by Jonathan Maxwell in his superb book, The Edge, as a mineral superpower? Did you know it has the second largest gas reserves in Europe after Norway, or that the Donbass boasts one of the largest coal deposits in the world? And here's the crucial bit, or an extra crucial bit, that Ukraine has stocks of 117 of the 120 most widely used metals and minerals, including manganese, sulfur, graphite, titanium, and nickel. Did you know that one think tank has estimated the mineral wealth now under Russian control in Ukraine at 12.4 trillion dollars, which is nearly four times the UK's GDP, 
albeit the former is a stock, the latter is a flow. And he goes on to kind of hammer home the point that actually controlling these resources is a hugely important factor in not only launching the war, as I've already said, but also uh, remaining in control of these areas in particular, the Donbass and Luhansk. You can bet your bottom dollar that a similar calculation is going on in Zelensky's you know, presidential palace as to the determination to get back this territory. So all those people who say, oh, we'll just let them have bits of Ukraine, who wants the Donbass anyway, are slightly missing the point, I think. But it's interesting stuff, Patrick, isn't it? And it's not really something that we've considered up to this point. So thank you both for flagging this up. Yeah, that is a, a fascinating part of, the, of this picture, isn't it? Um, but there's another one. There's another resource um, which is flagged up in um, Carolina Hurd, who's uh, a, a researcher on the Institute for the Study of War, has written a, a long report about the role of human beings, just as simply population uh, has in Putin's calculations. I mean, Russia, uh, something we, we sometimes forget, is a massively declining population. Its demographics are all going in the wrong direction. Population is declining by something like 600,000 people a year on the current trajectory. So part of his grand strategic plan is to get more Russians, essentially, by taking over territory that, you know, I think he sincerely does believe to be part of Russia and thereby boost the nation's manpower requirements that way. So that's, I think, another big part of his calculation. Okay, we have another contribution from Martin on Gaza. He writes, still enjoying your podcasts. I've noticed the very few human interest stories in the media about Gaza, just lots of frighteningly high figures of casualties. This is in stark contrast to the pen pictures of the victims of the October 7th attack and of Israeli soldiers who have died in Gaza. Until I read this one about a six-year-old Gazan girl who was killed along with two Palestinian Red Crescent paramedics who tried to save her. It appears that she was shot by an Israeli sniper where the ambulancemen were killed by a missile aimed at their ambulance. And he then provides a, a link to an article in The Guardian. And his question is, do you think the Israeli PR machine is still much more adept than the Palestinians? Yeah, well, first a word on that story. It was utterly heartbreaking, wasn't it? Her name was Hind Rajab, six-year-old girl. And the story was how her family was evacuating when it was hit by an Israeli tank, all her family members were killed except her, and then she was subsequently killed in circumstances which are not exactly clear. But anyway, the story did go around the world. I mean, people, how could you not you know, read that and despair, really? But on the specific point about the Israeli PR machine, it has historically been more, much more adept than the Palestinians, much slicker. They use uh, native-speaking PR people, so you get American people, their spokespeople speak with American accents, Australian accents, British accents. So they make themselves seem much more part of the West, I suppose, than the Palestinians, who, uh, despite the fact they're you know, highly educated people and all the rest of it, uh, don't seem to be nearly as professional as the Israelis. Now, on the actual question of these uh, stories, individual stories coming out of Gaza, well, the reason uh, that we're not hearing them, I don't think, is the fault of the media organizations, but the fact they can't get their people in there. The Israelis control the space very, very tightly. If you do go in, you'll go in with an IDF unit. You'll see just what they want to show you, and that's it. And if you're a local journalist, you stand a very good chance of being killed. So far, I think the number's up to 80 media workers have been killed in the conflict thus far. So it's, it's much, much more difficult for the Palestinians to get their 
such stories out in a way that would be acceptable, verifiable, etc., by the uh, you know global media organisations, and therefore that's why the case of Hindra Jab was, all, I think, in a way, all the more powerful because uh, it came out of all these statistics. You suddenly got a snapshot of of the horror of what's been going on there. Okay, and our final question is from Richard, and he writes, I saw today that via the BBC that Captain Earl Earhart, he's a US Marine Corps Harrier pilot, is the first claimed US fighter ace since the Vietnam War with seven Houthi drone kills over the Red Sea. Two things I thought about this, writes Richard. Firstly, my surprise that the US still uses Harrier aircraft. I remember your Falklands series where they featured prominently and the fact that the RAF no longer uses them as they were deemed obsolete. And secondly, that surely he doesn't count as a fighter ace if he's just shooting down drones. Surely there needs to be an enemy combatant in the pilot seat of any kills counted. Or is this the application of old war lingo to a new area of warfare? Patrick, I'm going to defer to you as our Air Force expert. Um, What do you think? Does he deserve to be called an ace having knocked down just drones? Well, I think any any sort of fighter command veteran would would be chortling uh, into his beer if he uh, <laughs> if he if he heard about this because, I mean, yeah, I mean it is it is stretching the definition of an ace a bit, isn't it? I'm just just thinking immediately. Of course, you know, lots of um, V ones were shot down by fighter command uh, in 1944 when they started coming across from uh, continental Europe. But I'm sure no one would. Uh, would dream of, of of claiming that as a as a certified kill. So yeah, maybe it's uh, it's ace inflation. I think you can call it. On the question of of the Harriers, yeah, the, the Marine Corps love their Harriers. They've still got eighty seven. Would you believe of these uh, AV eight Bs? I think they are. I mean, they're they're second um, generation ones, and they they're sort of V tall or S tall. They can do vertical short takeoff and landing. Um, but I think this may be their last hurrah, this uh, this venture into the Red Sea, because I think they're all going to come out of commission, out of service rather, this year. And I think they're moving to um, F-35s next year. Yeah, and, and the F-35s, although they're incredibly expensive, do have the capacity for this uh, uh, short-range takeoff, don't they, Patrick? So you can see why ultimately the Harrier jet is is outmoded and will be replaced. But I think, yeah, a lot of a lot of people will be sad to see it go. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Wednesday when Patrick and I will be discussing the Pacific as part of our ongoing Battlefield 44 series. And also, of course, back next Friday when we'll be looking again at the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine and interviewing someone on the ground. Goodbye. Goodbye.